Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. Good to see some new faces. I'm Pastor Jody Killingsworth. In our pastor's meeting, we, every week the pastors meet on a Tuesday, typically, and in our pastor's meeting this week we had a really good discussion about young people and education. Really helpful to me, and I wanted to try to take some of the things I took away from it and have been chewing on, meditating about, uh, repackage it as best I could and present it to you, especially to you young people here today. We are on the brink of starting school. Schools are about to begin uh, all around, and I wanted to speak to that from God's word. And I chose for our text a couple of verses, companion verses from the book of Proverbs. Education is about the pursuit of wisdom and knowledge, and Proverbs speaks more than any other book of the Bible to that pursuit. And so that's where our text comes from. But before we get into it, let me just, let's remind ourselves a little bit about what we know about the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is a book of the Bible by, written by King Solomon, and it's framed as exhortations from a father to his son. It's the setup of the book, the framework of the book. Exhortations from a father to his son. And the father's goal in exhorting his son is to impart something to his son. It's to impart wisdom to his son. And the vehicle for imparting wisdom chosen by the father is the proverb. A proverb is a short, pithy saying that conveys some truth some general truth or some particular bit of advice to somebody. It's, it's, a, it's a way of communicating truth and giving advice, it's the proverb. Interestingly enough, though, the first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs are not strictly speaking proverbs. Proverbs, strictly speaking, are kept for the, the second half of the book. The first half of the book is a series of speeches that the father gives, sometimes in the voice of wisdom itself or herself, to his son, trying to woo him to want wisdom, this wonderful thing that he knows as wisdom. He wants his son to want it. And so he, he gives some, presents some speeches about why wisdom's important, what it can do for you, what the blessing of it is for you if you acquire it. Now that's the first half of the book of Proverbs. That's where our verses come from. And right there at the beginning of, the ver- of, the, of chapter one, right after the six verses of preface, there's this saying kind of like a proverb that Solomon puts out there that is, stands as kind of like the motto of the book of Proverbs. And that is from chapter one, verse seven, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And he says later in chapter nine, verse 10, he, uh, we, we, learn, we start to see that knowledge is uh, a synonym for wisdom. Wisdom and knowledge get used uh, back and forth in the same sense throughout the book of Proverbs. So he says the same motto again in chapter 9, verse 10, saying, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So in the first one, he says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom. In Proverbs nine ten, he says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The wisdom, he says in chapter four, verse seven, is the principal thing. Wisdom is the principal thing. And what he means by that is, 
in life, it's the ultimate thing. So imagine your father. All of us had dads. Imagine your father. Every son loves to have a father who takes, gives him attention. That's what a son wants. He wants attention from his father. And some, uh, the best attention a father can give is to take his son's face in his hands and say something to him. Something true, something encouraging, something helpful to him. And imagine Solomon or your father coming and, and putting your head in his hands and looking you in the eyes and saying, son, wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. And with all you're getting, get understanding. Wouldn't that be a good thing, sons, to hear from your dad? Just like that? Well, that's how Solomon is speaking to us. My son, wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom, and with all you're getting, get understanding. Young people, what do you think of in your life? What is the principal thing for you? If you just looked at your, your pursuits, the things you're after, the things you want and desire and think about, things you're pursuing, what would we conclude is the principal thing in your life? God says wisdom is the principal thing. And not only that, but this principal thing is the thing that's going to make you happy. It's life. That's what the, the first chapters of Proverbs say. Wisdom is life. Let me quote some of it to you. He who finds me finds life. You want a life? You want a good life? Get wisdom. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her. Remember the tree of life? Can you imagine having a tree of life in your yard? (laughs) The fountain of youth that you could eat from whenever you wanted and live forever? Wisdom is that. She's not just life to the soul, but health to the body, it says in chapter 4, verse 22. Wisdom is the favor of the Lord. Can you imagine living with this knowledge that God looks on you kindly, has regard for you, notices you, thinks about you, delights in you? Wisdom is this knowledge and understanding, this relationship with God. It is the favor of the Lord. It says so in chapter 8, verse 35. Wisdom is a protection and a shield and a defense. She watches over our steps. It says in chapter 2, verse 7. Most significantly, wisdom, to obtain wisdom, is to obtain happiness. Happy are all who hold her fast. Happy. The desire for happiness is one of the deepest desires God has put in your heart. You feel that? You want to be happy. You can't help but desire and seek to be happy. And you will find, you will look for it in all kinds of places, but that's just a sign that you want it. You want happiness. And God doesn't, God made you that way. 
And he's provided the thing that will lead to your happiness. And he calls it in Proverbs, wisdom. It's the principal thing. Do you want to f- be truly, profoundly, deeply, satisfyingly happy? God's solution is get wise. Get wise and you will. It's the principal thing. But what is it? What is it? Is wisdom... Where am I? Bear with me. What is wisdom? And how do we go about getting it? Our young men's Bible study last year studied... I think we made it through the first four chapters of Proverbs. We met at Bob's house, thank you Bob, on Wednesday mornings, and we were studying the book of Proverbs, and we were always asking ourselves, well, but what is this thing, wisdom? What is it? Just about every week, it was sort of like, once again, what is wisdom? And what does Proverbs itself show us wisdom is? Because there's a lot of different opinions and uh, views about what wisdom is. You know, you can, the internet's full of it. Wisdom's everywhere, apparently. But the Bible has a very specific thing in mind when it talks about wisdom and when it puts out wisdom as the way of life and life itself. It has a very particular thing in mind. And so what is it? Is it the ability to navigate through tricky situations? Is that what wisdom is? Is it a kind of shrewdness in business? Is that wisdom? Is it, a, is it the sense to recognize and avoid trouble? Is it godliness? Is it the acquisition or the amassing of useful information in your noggin? Is it the ability to put that useful information to a useful use? You know, to apply it to life. Is that what wisdom is? What is wisdom? We got to know if we're going to seek after this thing, what is it we're seeking for? Well, time and again, the context of Proverbs indicated what wise men throughout history have always said wisdom is too, as they studied scripture. But the context itself just seemed to make this clear that wisdom is, on the, it's, it's made up of two parts, really. The bulk of wisdom is made up of two parts. On the one hand, it includes the knowledge and understanding of who God is, knowing God. And on the other hand, what? Knowing who you are knowing yourself, knowing God, and knowing yourself. You do that, and you have acquired wisdom, according to Scripture. And we can see that in the early chapters of Proverbs. So on the one hand, Proverbs teaches us that wisdom consists of a true knowledge of God. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 to 6. This is one of the places where we see this. In these verses, we have a father putting before his son an if-then proposition. He says, my son, if you will receive my words and if you will treasure my commandments within you, here's an implied if, if you will make your ear attentive to wisdom, incline your heart to understanding, for if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek for her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then 
you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. You see that? The knowledge of God is the wisdom that God has. He's he's the one who can dispense it. And it's clear that if we seek it, he's ready to give it to us. That's a beautiful teaching of this, an application of this passage, is God is there waiting to give us wisdom if we will seek and cry for it. But wisdom is the knowledge of God, the knowledge of who he is and what he's like and what pleases him. And it kind of makes sense, just logically, because God is wisdom. He's the creator. He created all things, including things like wisdom. (laughs) Nothing exists that he did not create and make and conceive of. He is wisdom itself. This is what it says in the latter part of Romans. He is the only wise God. So he's capital W, wisdom as a person. He's the very definition of wisdom. So to know him is to be wise. How do you come to know God? You know, don't take it for granted that you do. He does not owe you that. But he has revealed himself. He is knowable. He has made himself known. How has he made himself known? You know, have you ever heard people say, well, I feel closest to God when I'm out in the woods. My church is my tree stand. That, I've heard that. That's a very common sentiment and thought. And you know, there's something, there's a kernel of truth in it because God, the heavens are declaring the glory of God and it is a beautiful world out there. And it's nice to get out in it. But that knowledge of God, which nature can teach and testifies to, is not enough to make you wise. It's not enough to make you wise. Not in the proverb sense of knowing God. You can know certain things about God from nature. What can you know? We know this from Romans chapter 1. It's very clear. What can you know about God from nature? That he is, that he exists. You can know that he's a judge. You can know that he is holy and powerful and majestic. You can know his wrath and anger against your sin. Your conscience can be awakened by nature. You can discern in nature that something's deeply wrong with the world and with you. But what can't you know? You cannot know Jesus Christ. You cannot know God as your father. You cannot be brought near to him through Jesus the mediator apart from the knowledge that he has revealed to you. Where? Frank said it. Say it out loud, Frank. In his word. Do you care that he has revealed himself to you in his word? Do you care? How much has he revealed about himself? How much wisdom has he, has he to impart through his word? 
he has revealed his son, Jesus Christ. He has revealed himself as a savior for sinners like you and me through his word. And Jesus is the mystery, the wisdom of God. He is the treasure house of all wisdom. There's a wonderful passage in Colossians chapter two that I want us to just look at together. Paul is writing to the Colossian church and he, he wants them to know how much he is, why he, what is he doing? Why does he do his work? What is he trying to accomplish? He, so here's what he says. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face. He's working for a lot of people. <laughs> And here's what he says, here's what he's after. So that their hearts may be encouraged having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery that is Christ himself in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Not an amazing passage. Where do we seek for wisdom? In the word of God. And what do we get from the word of God that we can't get anywhere else? Jesus Christ. That's where he is. That's where he is taught to us all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in him and they're available to us there in the word. I repeat the question, do you care? These are cheap. Probably we got, many of us have dozens of them in our houses. Each of our children probably possess one. Do we care to know and appreciate what we have here in the word of God? All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge opened up to us by a kind and benevolent and loving father. What does our use of the Bible say about our desire and appetite for wisdom, for true wisdom, the knowledge of God through Jesus. Young people, read the Bible. Love the Bible. Build a habit. We were talking about habits yesterday in our Cedars parent orientation meeting. Build a habit now of daily Bible reading. Carson, read the Bible. Kids, read the Bible. Love it. When you don't understand it, ask questions about it. Ask questions of it. Ask God to teach you, and he will. Why are we so disinterested and lazy about the treasure that God has given us in his word? Well, it's really, I think, due to the fact that we... Don't 
really have, or, and even probably detest, the second part of what makes up knowledge, according to scripture. And that is having a right view of ourselves. Because we don't have a true and right and accurate view of ourselves, we don't care much for wisdom. So because you could say we don't have the first or the second half or part, the half, we don't have half of wisdom to start with, we can't have the whole of it. We need a right view of ourselves. And if we do, it will result in an appetite for the knowledge of God. You can see this, that part of wisdom or wisdom consists also of a true and accurate self-knowledge in the first chapter of Proverbs, verses 20 to 23. There's lots of places you can see this, but this is just the first one that struck me as I was preparing for this sermon. Here's an indication that wisdom consists also of a true knowledge of you. Okay? In the Proverbs, wisdom is often personified as a lady, and she gives several speeches in order in the early part of the book, and here is an excerpt from Lady Wisdom's first speech. Proverbs 1, starting in verse 20. Wisdom shouts in the streets. She lifts her voice in the square. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the gates in the city, she utters her sayings. How long, O naive ones, will you love being simple-minded? And scoffers delight themselves in scoffing, and fools hate knowledge. Turn to my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit on you, and I will make my words known to you. So where do we see I said that this reveals that wisdom entails an accurate self-knowledge. Where do we see that? Well, we see that in what she's calling you. (laughs) What does she call you? Naive. Simple-minded. Scoffers and fools. Now, how does that strike you? You like that? She comes reproving us. She comes calling us names. And she says, if you want the good that I have to give you, turn to it. Turn to my reproof. Listen to me. Back here behind me or with me, I've laid out this banquet of knowledge and understanding which is life-giving and satisfying for the end, to the end of time and beyond. <laughs> Treasure houses of delight and pleasure in what I got back here for you. Okay, all you simple people, <laughs> all you fools, come and get it. <laughs> That's what she says. Which means what? You got to accept. She says, turn to my reproof. You got to accept that she's right about you. She's got your number. She's not, she's accurately diagnosing your condition. You are a fool. You are simple minded. 
you do not know the first thing about God or about life or about the way to please him. You, you, don't, you are naive. And you can't come and have what she has. She, she's like, if you turn to my reproof, if you listen to my call and come and you respond and say, you, by responding, you basically say and acknowledge, oh, yeah, that's me, I'm coming. <laughs> then you, you are acknowledging that. And, but that's the prerequisite to having her say, what does she say she'll do? I'll pour out my spirit on you and make my words known to you. Words of eternal life that she has. Wisdom is concerned to help you know yourself. And she comes, we don't, we are so proud and so full of ourselves and so self-assured and self-satisfied that we have to be reproved by God, by God's ministers, by our parents. There is no there is no chance for us unless we are rebuked, reproved, and turned to it. This is the beginning of life, the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. We have to come to see that we got nothing, but we need something. When you start to feel a need and you realize, I don't have what I, what I, what I th- thought I had, God reveals that to me. I have a need. Suddenly you have an appetite for what God lays before you in his word. So the knowledge of God and the knowledge of self make up biblical wisdom. And they, they're symbiotic. They feed one another. They reinforce each other. You can't really, I mean, you have to come to a sense of yourself before you look up to heaven. You look up to heaven and you get a really much clearer view of yourself. This is, you remember what Isaiah, the prophet, he had that vision, an early part of Isaiah, of God seated on his throne and immediately he's like, woe is me. I'm undone. I've got wicked, unclean lips. So they reinforce each other. You grow in the knowledge of God, you grow in the knowledge of yourself. You grow in the knowledge of yourself, you grow in the knowledge of God because you're you're displeased with yourself. You're dissatisfied with yourself. You realize in here I am not going to find the answers. I am not sufficient. I got a problem. I need help. And we're pulled up out of ourselves to look to heaven for that help which God has. We have to start by accepting God's diagnosis of us. We have to come to a sense of our need. It reminds me of where Jesus says, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It's not like the world breaks down into righteous and unrighteous people by nature. What he's really saying is that there are people who, everybody's unrighteous, but there's some people, many people, who think that they're fine. I didn't come for those people. I came for the people who know they're not fine. I came for sinners. And similarly, the world doesn't really break down into wise and foolish, not by nature. (laughs) The Lord looked down from heaven on the sons of men, 
to see if there were any that sought for God, but they have all turned aside. That's us by nature. The, some, some by God's grace recognize and accept when they hear the Holy Spirit calling, all you fools, come to me and I'll teach you. They say, that's me, I need to be taught. That's a, that's a sign of God's favor and grace at work in your life, his spirit at work in your life. But most people are what? Self-assured, proud, self-confident, resistant to the Holy Spirit. They will not confess their need, particularly of being taught. This is why we were talking about this and we're talking about education. It's hard to teach. You know why it's hard to teach? (laughs) Because it's hard to learn. Do you know why it's hard to learn? Because we're so proud. (laughs) We don't want to be taught. We want to be all. We want to know it all. We want to feel like we know it all. Like we got this. Like, you know, I've got to figure it out. I'm on top of the things. I understand. You don't need to teach me nothing. That's, That's our hearts. That's who we are. We don't like to be taught. It's hard to teach because it's hard to be taught. It's hard to be taught because of pride. You can't be taught something without confessing and accepting that you don't know. <laughs> and so we were, we were talking about this kind of along these lines in our pastor's meeting. And what a corruption has been made of education that it results in Pride. It's awful. Education should result in humility. It is both the starting point necessary for being, for receiving instruction, some knowledge that I don't know, (laughs) the half of anything, teach me. So, young people, are you listening? Go to school. Not, yeah, I know. I know that. Yeah, I knew that already. Don't be like that. Don't be like that. Be open. Be humble. Listen. There are older, wiser, and smarter people that are there. They don't have to be there. They want to be there because they want you to learn. (laughs) They don't get paid enough to do it. (laughs) But they love you and they want you to learn. So don't go cocky. Don't go thinking you know anything. Go open, humble, ready to to learn and to grow and be taught. You will find that there's a lot of wonderful things to know and to delight in. It's the prerequisite for learning the first thing. But learning itself should grow your sense of how much you don't know. (laughs) That's what it should do. It sh- that's, that, this is what wonder is. You can't wonder without humility. And wonder is the fun part of, of learning. <laughs> so you, if, you, uh, if you really are going to learn anything at school, 
you're going to learn anything from the Bible, if you're going to learn anything from a sermon, it's going to only increase your knowledge of how little you know, how stupid you are, how much you need to be taught, and appreciate the one who teaches. Ultimately, God himself, he is full of wonder. Endless, infinite wonder. And he's ready to teach you. And you have to start by saying, I need to be taught. That is so hard in our rebellious, prideful hearts to say. That should be our orientation. If you deny your innate, natural foolishness, if you deny that you need to be taught, that you need to learn, if you profess that you're wise instead, you remain a fool and you're self-deceived. Who's the real fool? The Holy Spirit says, come all you fools, I got a bunch of, I got a bunch of goodies here for you. A wonderful banquet, a feast of knowledge and wisdom and understanding and life. Who's the fool? The one who says, oh, I don't need that. I, I, got, I got enough over here on my own. That's a fool. Not the one who says, I'm a fool. I need that. Give it to me. And Paul in Galatians puts it this way. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Self-deception of this kind is the sworn enemy of learning. You can't learn. You can't be taught of God. You can't be taught of your teachers. You can't be taught anything if you think that you're something when you're nothing. <laughs> it's really that simple. What, what Paul is saying is, we are nothing. We should stop thinking we're something. We're self-deceiving. And that's the sworn enemy of learning and of wisdom. The Apostle John says that this was the condition of a whole church, the Laodiceans, Remember the letters to the churches in, in Revelation, the last book of the Bible? He's writing to the seven churches, and the, the church of the Laodiceans has the bit about you're, you're neither hot nor cold, you're lukewarm, and so I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Ugh. And here's why, he says, in verse 17, right after that he says, because you're lukewarm, because you say, I am rich, and I have become wealthy. And you have need of nothing. That's what you say to yourselves. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. <laughs> you think you're something when you're nothing. And because of that, you're useless to me. Just the teachers, I don't know, Eric, you've taught a lot of people. A lot of teachers here have taught kids, taught young people. No teacher wants a student to come in and feel like there's something when they're nothing. It's not helpful. <laughs> it's counterproductive. It's like what teacher would want to be there teaching a room full of people that 
think they're something when they're nothing. On the other hand, if there's a bunch of people that are there and they're like, I don't, I don't know, but this is fascinating. You probably have a lot to teach me. Would you teach it to me? <laughs> I got nothing. Wow, what a joy for the teacher. And this is the same, this is what Jesus is saying to the church of the Laodiceans. It, you're disgusting to me. <laughs> I want to spew you out of my mouth. Because you think you're something when you're nothing. You don't admit that you're poor and wretched and miserable. Have I made my point? Do you understand what I'm saying? <laughs> Until we are dissatisfied with ourselves, despair of ourselves, we'll never look up to God. And I'm just going to say again, I don't know how to say this strongly enough. God has life for you. God has happiness and joy for you. God has wisdom and truth and profundity for you. God has wonders for you. They're all here in the word, sufficient for our life, for everything in life. It's right here. And we'll never look up for it. We'll never have an appetite for it as we should unless we start by despairing of ourselves and have some sense of our need and of our, what Calvin would say, our ills. So this is, this what I'm, everything I've been saying is very famously and very eloquently put in the first chapter of Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion. It's about what wisdom is and it consists of the knowledge of God and the knowledge of self. And I want to read you. I know it's hard to listen to people read to you, especially old things. But listen, this is just a, a few sentences from that first chapter. Calvin says, we are prompted, motivated, pushed by our own ills to contemplate, look up and see the good things of God. And we cannot seriously aspire to him before we begin to become displeased with ourselves. For what man in all the world would not gladly remain as he is, what man does not remain as he is, so long as he does not know himself, that is, while he's content with his own gifts and either ignorant or unmindful of his own misery, There's this wonderful statement in the committal liturgy. So from the Church of England going back a long ways, when they put a dead body in the ground, a loved one, bury them, they read the same words over and over again. And there's this wonderful phrase from it that strikes me every time as both tremendously beautiful and true and powerful and also foreign In the midst of life, we are in death. In the midst of life, we are in death. That's so hard for young people to see. 
It does get a little naturally, naturally speaking, it gets a little easier as we age. But you can still be old and deny that to your core. That's a Christian confession. That's what that is. It's, it's an accurate look at the brokenness of the world, of the ravages of sin and its effects in our bodies, of the coming judgment. In the midst of life, we are in death. Until we start to see that, still we have a sense of our misery, of our unhappiness, of how unable the world is to solve our problem. And unable the, the Jeep Gladiator is to, f- to meet my need. My girls are into Jeep Gladiators all of a sudden. I don't know whose girls out there got my girls into Jeep Gladiators, but thanks. <laughs> the worst car ever. I mean, it's cool. I'll grant you that. But, I mean, you can take the doors off. That's a cool car when you can take the doors off it. Um, unless, we, unless we start to see that, you know, until the world starts to turn to sand and fall through our fingers a bit. Until we start to think, I, I've tried it and it didn't work. The, the weed is not making me happy. Illicit touch with my boyfriend or girlfriend or is not making me happy. Video games are actually not making me happy. Until we start to have some sense of our need and of the and take a, and find the world and its stuff dissatisfying to meet that need. Until when we look inside and we see there's a hole there. And I'm trying to shove stuff in it and it's not working. We'll never care to look to God. Meanwhile, God's got, God wants you to be happy. God's eager to make you happy. God knows how to make you happy. To satisfy you eternally. To put inside you, to give you a taste of water that springs up to eternal life that you never have to drink from another well again. And I could go on and on and on with you know, biblical pictures of what God's got for you. We'll never look for it or desire it until we know that we have need, until we feel that need. Young people, you got a, you got a problem. And as somebody who's lived as a young person and is getting less young by the second, I've tried a lot of things. Not as many things as Daniel there, but a lot of things. (laughs) A lot of us here have tried a lot of things. Skip it. Just skip it. Go right to the Bible. Love the Lord. Seek wisdom. It'll save you a world of hurt and other people a world of hurt. I heard a lot of people trying to meet my need in the wrong ways. God alone 
is able to satisfy. So skip it and just go to him. We've talked a lot about the second half of the verse. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We've talked a lot about wisdom. What is wisdom? It is the knowledge of God and the knowledge of self. Those accumulate together, correspond, become together what the Bible means by wisdom. And it includes, really at the heart of it, the way of salvation in Jesus Christ, the access to God, the fountain of all wisdom and knowledge. Jesus is the treasure house of wisdom and knowledge himself. So wisdom is the way of salvation through Jesus Christ. That's what, is, that's what one, makes one wise. Somebody who's on that way, God says, is wise. Remember that saying of Jesus? I think it's of Jesus. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? That man's a fool. He might have cured cancer, but he's a fool. So wisdom is the way of salvation, and it includes a a true knowledge of God and a true knowledge of who we are. How do we get it? God says there's a door that opens at the beginning of that way, the way of wisdom. On the other side of the door is treasure houses of wisdom and knowledge and learning and wonder and delight. And the way, the door itself is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning, the entry point, the gate, the door that leads to wisdom. That on the surface seems to be an odd thing. I had a little run in with a snake back here yesterday in this room. It was real, alive. It was coiled up right in front of the sound booth. Is everybody getting kind of (laughs) uncomfortable? It wasn't very big. I think we determined uh, from the pictures that it's like a, uh, a, what is it called? Lawrence told me, a gray, it's just a very common, not poisonous snake. What is it, a gray something? Rat, Rat snake? Is that what it was, D? Okay, so, I was just going to the, the kitchen to get some sugar for my tea and came back out of the kitchen. I was walking by the thing and then this thing goes like this at me and I had a woo in a moment. I'm glad nobody was in here. And then I went immediately to the other side of the building and I said, D. Wayne, do you like snakes? Could you come and solve this problem for me? The older I get, the less I like snakes. I'm glad D. Wayne was here. <laughs> but fear is something that makes us recoil. You know, typically that's what, that's what fear is. It's like, ah, I, you know, it, it, we, we pull back from something. And there is a kind of fear that does cause us to recoil from God rather than come to him. So this is why it's odd that it says fear is the, is the opening to wisdom because normally that's it's like we don't move forward or towards, we move away from the thing that we fear. You with me? And there is a kind of fear 
that you see in scripture that does cause people to turn from God and run from him. We see that right at the beginning of scripture in Genesis chapter three. When Adam and Eve fell into sin, what did they do? They covered and they hid. They ran, (laughs) tried to get away from God when he came looking for them. It says, Adam says, God says, why did you do that? Where are you? And he says, when I heard the sound of you in the garden, I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. Those are Adam's words. I was afraid, so I hid myself. But that's what I've been listening. I've been listening to a book called The Fear of God. Tim's been mentioning The Fear of God in his sermons on Romans. It's something, it's, it's a place to park and to think and meditate. What is the fear of God? It's important to know and understand. It's commended all through scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, as something we must have and possess to know God. We must fear him. What is it? It's, he's not commending this fear of Adam's, which caused Adam to, to run away from him. He's commending the opposite, and he's calling that fear. The fear of the Lord, as best I can put it, is this. Instead of running and hiding, when you're aware and come aware, come under the conviction of sin. Instead of denying it, instead of trying to cover it up, the fear of the Lord is this. It's to recognize that there is no getting away from God. There is no hiding. He is there and he must be dealt with. And so I deal with him. I don't deny him, his existence. I don't deny my sin and guilt. I stand here and I deal with you. Not on my terms, on your terms, now. Right now. Not later. Now, today. I put myself on the altar. I know that you are the, you are the judge, the only one who can damn me. I know that you are a redeemer, the only one who can save me, therefore you are feared. You do with me what seems best to you. That's the fear of the Lord that we're commended, that's commended to us as godly fear. I'm not running away from you anymore. I am what I am. I'm ashamed of it. I deserve death. You've promised life, but here I am. (laughs) I can't do any of that for myself. I trust myself entirely to you. That's the best I know how to explain the fear of the Lord. That's what I think the essence of it is, living before God, as opposed to denying him. Living as if he's real and dealing with it. That's the fear of the Lord. Allowing your conscience to be awake and then fleeing to God 
in desperation. You know, that's not something, though, that you can, I mean, along the lines of this, of what I'm saying, that's, that kind of fear is not even something you can work up in yourself. It is a gift from God. It says in Jeremiah chapter 32, God says, I will put my fear in their hearts that they shall not depart from me. Young people, behind this door of fear of God that I would very much like to see every one of you walk through today. Behind that door is wisdom. And wisdom is life. Eternal life. And it's painful because it comes with rebukes like fool and naive. (laughs) And it comes with an understanding of God's holiness and his law. And it doesn't get easier (laughs) to bear that knowledge of God and of your guilt before him. It's not like a one-time thing. I grew up in a church where salvation was like this one-time thing. What I've been discovering is I, I got to pray the sinner's prayer every day <laughs> of sorts. I need Jesus again more fully now than I did yesterday. You do too. It doesn't get easier. I'm not saying that the way of wisdom is roses. But it is life and fulfilling and true and wonderful. And in the end, eternal life. And if you want to walk through that door, here's, what I, here's how you do it. God, put your fear into my heart. You pray that prayer. Put your fear into my heart that I might not depart from you. And parents, that's, a, that's state-of-the-art parenting, really. God, Father, put your fear into my child's heart that they might not depart from you. Oh, there's all kinds of things that the scriptures exhort you to do. To discipline and love and teach your, par- your kids, parents. But pray that prayer, God, put your fear into their hearts so that they won't depart from you. I'm going to pray that for us now. Heavenly Father, in you is holiness, awesome power, grace and mercy and love. Knowing your power and your holiness, we need and feel that we need your love and your mercy and your grace. You have revealed to us even in this 
time, sin, and need. Oh God, would you, would you meet that need in your son Jesus? Would you de- put down deep roots of your fear into our hearts so that we would continually come to you and not run away? Thank you for your word. Help us to love it. In Jesus' name, amen.